Welcome to series four of the Bold Flavors podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto, a B Corp certified company that loves food, data, people, technology, and the planet. We are currently delivering millions of meals every single week, and our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner. Our purpose is to have positive impact on people and the planet. And each week here on Bold Flavors, I'll be talking to top company founders, CEOs and business leaders about their journey so far, what makes them tick and how they achieve what they're achieving. Today, I'm talking to Neha, the global head of culture and leadership at Salonis. She is a psychologist, executive coach, and has done 20 years in leadership. She passionately believes in people's potential, in the importance of creating space, listening and challenging all your assumptions. Before joining $11 billion valued Salonis, Nia worked in the talent space across consulting, banking, and fintech. Today, Nia and I will talk about the culture opportunities scale-ups have, whether our world has gotten better or worse in terms of social progress, and what coaching questions she loves the most. Nia, thank you so much for taking the time. I would love to start by understanding your current job and the company you work for. Sure. So I am currently at Salonis and I am the global head of leadership and culture here at Salonis. One year in almost into that journey. Um, and a little bit about Salonis. Salonis was uh, founded by three students, three students and good friends from uh, the Technical University of Munich. And we just celebrated our 10th birthday last year. Wow, congratulations. Um, yeah, so an exciting time to be here. It's a, an organization that gives businesses real-time data uh, on and an overview of their process. So helping to reveal and fix all of those inefficiencies that we can't see and all in one single cloud-based system, which we call the Salonis Execution Management System. So that's what we do um, and hopefully makes our, well, not hopefully, it does make our companies that we work with more efficient and, of course, then the knock-on impact for um, sustainability. And did overnight success take 10 years? Like, was this <laughs> always a success or did it at some point just take off? So um, in my history of Salonis, I have seen hyper growth. Um, <laughs> of course. It's been yeah. pretty incredible, um, the number of Salonauts that we've hired uh, year on year. But of course, uh, these three incredible students, our founders in their early years, I'm sure had uh, uh, five years or so of blood, sweat and tears to get us to this, this stage. And so last year you joined, the company was valued at $11 billion, raised a billion dollars. I mean, huge, huge milestone. Mm -hmm. um, so talk, talk me through what has happened in the last 12 months in terms of hyper growth. So the last 12 months have been uh, literally, and I know everybody uses this term, but I literally feel like I've been on a rocket ship. I mean, I've <laughs> come from organizations that are pacey, busy, demanding in a positive way. But what I've experienced over the past 12 months is an incredible influx of really talented individuals across all aspects of our business. So we've gone from 500 a couple of years ago to 1,900 people, estimating by the end of this year that we'll be close to 3,000 people. Wow. So really pacing that growth, really ambitious goals for the business. But really what's spoken to me and 
one of the reasons that I chose to join Salonis, and, and I have to be honest, I didn't know who was Salonis were when uh, Salonis approached me, was in meeting our CEOs and, and the humbleness in recognizing we've grown really quickly. And there's a lot of things that are going beautifully well as an incredible mm-hmm. pride in our product. But actually, from a culture and leadership perspective, when you introduce that many people in one go, and we haven't necessarily defined the Salonis way in any great detail, I found myself immersed in trying to understand how do we do things at Salonis? What are the collaboration principles, the leadership principles? How do we onboard all of our talent to do things the Salonis way? spent a lot of time on that. We've spent a lot of time thinking about our leadership curriculum, how we provide learning for all, how we provide a growth environment for our Selenauts, um, a feedback environment. So it's been an intense year of putting in place some foundational thinking around culture and leadership, but also a lot of time with our executive team trying to understand how do we want to do things at Salonis. And before we go into these, these like hugely fascinating challenges, Can you share revenue numbers or I guess in how many countries the company's operating in or just to build up a picture of, of the company? Yeah, so so you, you already mentioned our valuation and that's that's the information that, that we share. So um, 11 billion valuation following a Series D funding round of 1 billion. We've got a customer base and we count the likes of Azeneca, BMW, Uber, Vodafone amongst the customers really fast growing uh, software company, 100% ARR growth year on year. I already talked about the 2000 plus employees um, and 16 offices globally, which is actually quite a quite a footprint across the globe for our size. Massive, massive. And so if you dimensionalize, I guess, the cultural challenge, like what comes to mind? You mentioned leadership principles, how you collaborate, Like what, what are the kind of the key dimensions of, of that cultural challenge you have to tackle now? Yeah, so um, for me, um, I've spent a lot of time understanding where we've come from. Speaking to, we call, we call our, our employees selenauts. So speaking to our longstanding selenauts and really understanding uh, what has made us successful so far. And what's interesting is when we hear selenauts talking about the best team winning, customer first, um, earth is our future, we own it. When we think about those values, those weren't actually written down even when Salonis was, was set up. So they've been written uh, for the past year, just before oh, wow. we came. Wow. Um, so there's a real respect for that legacy and what's made us successful. But with the rate of growth, we have more new joiners than we do legacy selenauts or longstanding selenauts. We realize that we've need, we need to put more effort and emphasis on actually bringing those values to life. And so the effort is around detailing some principles around how we collaborate, how we make decisions, and frankly, how do we get those quickly out to um, our selenauts, whether it be at onboarding, whether it be as part of our leadership training, how do we be authentic to who we are, but also aspirational? Because of course, we're, we're not perfect. There are things that we could do better and differently. So I would say um, one of the biggest challenges is how do I get the message out there and it's obviously not just my message mm. but more importantly how do we create the behavioral 
indicators and proof points when we're bringing so many people into the company um, so quickly and from so many different organizations. So that has been a significant area of focus. I, I love to delve into that a bit more. And so you figure out what the winning behaviors are. Now you're trying to make them as repeatable as possible. You try to hire against them. You try to celebrate these behaviors so that everyone kind of role models them. But like what, what are kind of the tangible translation mechanisms, for example, hiring? So like a specific way to look at behavior rather than just skill and experience? Yeah, so at the, at the moment, um, we do look at commitment, character, capability, slash competencies, and that has been in Salonis's history of measuring against the three Cs. And there are various, you know, recruiting mechanisms, whether those are, you know, technical tests, whether those are interviews with people to, to look for culture plus, if you like. But actually, some of the work, and in fact, that's part of the work that I'm doing um, this week with the people and culture leadership team, is how do we start to look at uh, hiring for the mission and the purpose, mm. right? It's a, it's a big topic. So that is that is something that that we're looking to, to change and to build. Some other tangibles, you know, we talk about being open to talk and, and fully open to inclusion. So we have our all company, all hands on a weekly basis. And we start to ask questions about, you know, who's taking part in those? Is that the most effective way of getting out our messages? Um, are we genuinely transparent on everything? Should we be transparent on everything? So mm -hmm. as we're looking at the proof points, we're really challenging ourselves to say, okay, if we're going to put this out there as the Salonis way, how are we seeing that? As I said, hiring against the mission. Are we truly transparent? Are we genuinely fueling for performance? I mean, we're hyper growth, really, really big goals. Are we allowing people time to refuel and take down time? And we've introduced rest days um, into the company uh, where all tools are down just so that everybody can recharge. Obviously, we, we have set up for our customers that need us at those times. We've introduced impact days. So these are four days globally where Selenauts can take time to build their legacy outside of Salonis. So those are the kinds of proof points and practical things that we are building as an organization to really bring those um, principles to life. Love it. I mean, you're clearly drizzling a lot of greatness on top of the... The people landscape um, sounds amazing. But imagine I'm a seller note and I want to be promoted from, I don't know, director to VP, whatever it's called. Is it clear to me what behaviors you really want from me and expect from me at each level? And therefore, do I have some kind of personal development plan every quarter that gets me closer to living the right behaviors at the right level? Mm -hmm. So what we do have is through the introduction of our new um, performance management experience is um, quarterly check-ins, either against your goals, refreshing your goals, having a uh, yearly career conversation that you check in regularly with, with your manager, personal growth plans, everybody uh, has the opportunity to complete those. We have talent profiles, which we're hoping is going to lead us later this year into an open talent marketplace, because, of course, um, a lot of the feedback is we love Salonis, but we want to know how we can either get promoted or how mm -hmm. we can move laterally. And that's actually in play for this year and is on our roadmap of things to develop. What I would say is, is that we're taking it even further to say um, in our environment, what does it even mean, VP versus director? And the mm. titling and the hierarchy and how does that all fit into 
who Salonis wants to be. So we, we've actually, we're actually taking the conversation all the way back. But in terms of building a growth um, culture and a feedback culture, we've certainly put those process steps in place. It's a muscle that we're developing. So every Selenor, every leader knows that this is the good thing to be doing. We are now in year two of this practice, just going into it. So we're, wow. we're trying to get better and better at it. Um, And that's also a really important part of who we are. We recognize where we've still got work to do. And actually one of the reasons that I chose to join this organization, because in speaking with Alex and Basti through the interview process, that recognition that actually from a culture perspective, from a people perspective, we do have lots of catching up to do, but I've been blown away in my one year of being here, just the investment, the energy and enthusiasm. and, And we've already put in place a lot of practices, but more to do. Um, amazing. I Look, I love the reflection, the self-awareness, the humility, the intentionality. I mean, clearly in an organization that's exploding like yours, there's still, you know, there are pockets of chaos. Nothing is good enough. But I love like how you're thinking about that stuff. Which company would you emulate? Like who gets this right in the world? <laughs> I don't think there's any one company that I think is getting this right right now actually I'm being thoughtful about how I'm responding to this because I just think the past two years (laughs) of the pandemic what we have going on um, you know from an economic perspective from a political perspective if we think about how the expectations of employees is shifting and changing so much I think we're all learning from each other but there are definitely pockets of really great practice that I see out there I even think about some of the companies I've worked at which are very different so if I think about Bank of America or I think about UBS or I think about Finastra where I came from there are some really nice practices um, so for example how do you blow up the idea of the nine box model in talent planning like is that really <laughs> the purpose these days you know and so using some of that thinking Um, but I think I think we're all being pushed to look at things differently given the macro environment and how do we build a great culture what does a great culture mean and it means something different to different people and something that we're spending a lot of time and energy on and we pride ourselves in this is we're listening a lot we do our engagement surveys on a quarterly basis we run listening sessions across our business to understand what's going well and not so well we're paying attention to all of those forums and feeding them up through to the executive team and being really thoughtful about where do we need to do some more thinking where could we just do it just do it better and where do we need to connect with other um, thought partners whether that's other companies or whether that's universities and researchers um, we're doing a lot of thinking around future of work right now. So, so I think I think we're all learning right now how to to build something special from a cultural perspective. And I'd love to understand the whole engagement point. I mean, as a common pattern you've seen throughout the crisis or, or the pandemic, I think has been for most companies, you saw peak engagement. We're in this together. We'll make it work. New ways of working. Everyone is excited. Common purpose. We're fighting the pandemic. And then most companies I look at, kind of engagement has fallen off a cliff. I guess what what drives engagement really? <laughs> so unfair. Sorry. No, not at all. I think it's it's a it's a it's a great question. You know what drives engagement? And I think, again, I mean, listen, this is my reflection. My thought on this is, I do think what we've been through with the pandemic is causing us all to think about what's going to drive my personal engagement. What are my expectations of my employer 
Um, you know, you look at all the studies around trust and how trust is dipping, whether it's trust in governments, for example, and the expectations on the employer going up, right? So we're expecting CEOs to step in to big topics that perhaps, you know, even a few years ago that CEOs were not expected to step into. So I think engagement is made up of so many components now. So what do you bring for me as an employee on a day-to-day, the Maslow hierarchy at the basic level, right, Mm -hmm. through to the top? What are you doing to make the world a fairer and better place? What are you doing to take a position um, and to have a societal impact What do you, I mean, like if I think about me personally, when I'm older and grayer, I want to be able to say this was the impact that Salonis had on the world. Mm. This was the impact that Salonis had for my grandkids, right? And Mm. for me, that's what engages me personally. So I think it's a complex topic. I think we are being more thoughtful about it at the basic level, of course. You have engagement surveys that measure an engagement index, a diversity, equity, inclusion index. We've had incredible participation. We ran it for the first Last year was our first year every quarter. We had 80 to 85% participation. We did find our engagement scores actually going up overall, but there were still some factors um, where we we had work to do, as as you'd expect. But I actually think when you, you scratch beneath the surface and you do these listening sessions, which is what we've spent a lot of time doing, that's the kind of feedback we hear from our people. It's like, what is the bigger impact that Salonis is going to have on the world? Where are our CEOs going to stand up and take a position? Mm-hmm. Great point. And I love the point you made around the relationship we have with with trust. You know, 50 years ago, I trusted the bank, the government, you know, the church, uh, the supermarket. And yeah. today, I mean, I'm not trusting any of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I literally, I mean, you know, the company I work at, my colleagues, my neighbor, and a couple of friends, and maybe my family, but that's it. And then a couple of brands. But yeah, it's changed so fundamentally. I think you're making a great point. Yeah, And then if you think about, I mean, you are fundamentally, I guess, a data and technology company, technology data historically have been very male dominated, lots of issues, you know, from from pipeline to biases in the process. Can you share any kind of nuggets of wisdom, like anything other companies can learn from you or implement to make it better? Yeah, so um, for me, diversity, equity, inclusion is is genuinely where my passion lies. And a lot of this kind of stems from from my childhood. And I've had the privilege of working in this space for over 20 years. And if I'm honest, not much has changed. And that's disappointing to say that. What I would say is, is that the companies that get this right, and this is what we're absolutely trying at Salonis, we're just at the beginning of, of, the, of the journey, is... How do we think about this, this topic holistically? Um, how do we think about this from a Selenaut perspective, from a societal perspective? How do we think about this in terms of where can we influence? Where do we have a seat at the table to influence these, these topics? So it's internal, it's external. It's about the communities we serve. How do we have executive sponsorship? which is more than more than lip service. And I'm really delighted that at Salonis, mm. as soon as I joined, that was one of the first things. We already had business resource groups, but you know, budget was put behind them. Executive sponsorship was put behind them. Um, I was given headcount to hire a, a global head of diversity, equity, inclusion within my team. So really mm. quick you know, responses to some, some basic foundational things that need to be put in place. And now we're elevating the conversation to you know, how are we influencing 
the sourcing strategies that we have? How are we putting in place aspirational targets to create change? How are we looking at this across the supply chain? How are we looking at this, the basics of job descriptions? But I think I think as an organization, we need to find our footing first. That's been my advice at Slowness. Let's find our footing. Mm. Let's find where we can influence. Let's work really hard to get it right inside Slowness and learn from other great companies. And then when we feel like we're in a position, let's do our piece for society as a whole. Let's use that platform to truly make a difference. And it's constantly changing, right? It's mm. it's whether it's gender, whether it's ethnicity, uh, whether it's socioeconomic status, whether it's what I like to call special abilities, so the disability mm-hmm. um, side of things. I mean, it's there, there's a lot of work for, for society to do in this space. Huge. I mean, there's so much human potential to be unlocked. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if you and I work together, and imagine you're at Gusto, uh, I'm, I'm the CEO of Gusto. Like, what's the, what's, what's kind of... The expectation of me, like, what can I do better? What's the one single advice you would give me to be a better leader with regards to what we just discussed? I would say to be really, really curious about what's going on around you, to surround yourself with people that are prepared to tell you it as it is. Interestingly, I had this conversation over dinner with my CEO. He asked a great question. He was like, you know, what are the three skills that are critical in your role? And one of the things that I did say to him was to let, never let you go out naked on stage, as it were. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll say, I'll say, I'll, I'll put it out there. I'll tell you what I need to tell you, but I need you to be open to one, listen, and to be really thoughtful about the change that your position actually is as a CEO, Timo, affords you, right? You're in an incredible position to create change, not only across um, Gusto, but, but, but broader than that. I also think um, being clear on what you stand for and what's important to you so that it's authentic. I, again, laugh with, with Alex, our CEO, when I first joined. I said, I've been doing this leadership, culture, DEI stuff for a long time. I can, I can come up with a strategy just like that. But actually, it means nothing if I don't understand the legacy that you want to leave, what's important to you, and then how we bring that to life across the organization. And then the other thing that I would reflect on would be to make sure that the that we lower the center of gravity. I talk about that a lot here at Salonis. Um, and what I mean by that is, is that there's a leadership team, <laughs> I guess, in your organization, Timo, right? Just like there is at Salonis. There are leaders. There are people leaders. Middle management, that's the permafrost that we used to call it in financial services. Mm-hmm. Unlock the potential of that group, lower the center of gravity and create hotspots of brilliance. And I think then we unlock lots of these cultural issues. Um, let's not keep it all at the top of the pyramid because otherwise it just gets lost. Uh, I love I love those points. Yeah, I mean, I'm hugely aware of, of both the responsibility, but also the, um, you know, the opportunity to have profound impact on families across the UK, on people, um, you know, building their career at Gusto. And so I'm taking it very seriously. And I feel like I'm, there's so much more I could be doing. um, And I'm trying really hard. But obviously, it's, as you said, it's a never ending topic, and you have to get better every year and different topics emerge in real time. You mentioned a sentence I just want to pick up on if that's okay. Mm -hmm. You did say a lot of this stems from my childhood. Do you mind if we go there? 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So my background, my parents are East African Asians. So they were um, in East Africa in, the, in a place called Mabale during Idi Amin's reign, actually. Uh, so Idi Amin decided at that stage that um, he wanted all of the East African Asians to leave um, Mabale. My mom was very heavily pregnant with me. Wow. So the whole plan was to actually bring me up in East Africa, but they came to uh, London, you know, as refugees and, and started again in uh, the UK. And the background um, to them is that my mom comes from a, a very strict uh, Muslim background and my dad from a very traditional Hindu background. And so you put those together, especially <laughs> during their time, that was quite an event, both of them getting together. And so they'd set up home, of course, and then they had to leave home and then they came to um, London. And when I was born, many bridges were fixed between the two families. And what I loved about the way that my mom and dad brought us up was never to choose, you know, are you Hindu, are you Muslim, but actually to respect everything. So, you know, we would go to the temple or we would go to the mosque. And in fact, we'd be pushed to go to the synagogue and the church and to learn wow. as much as we could about the differences. And I remember growing up listening to an aunt on my dad's side about her beliefs and her passion. And I loved her, but I would hear the same passion and belief and, and on my mom's side. And, and it was just curious for me, right? Listening to this, these people that I so love, but so intent on their personal belief and, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that raised a lot of questions for me, but also coming, um, you know, frankly, we didn't have a lot when we were growing up, but my mum and dad sacrificed, I mean, literally everything. They opened up businesses in the UK, which actually a lot of East African Asians did because of their business mindset. You'll find a mm -hmm. lot of news agents owned by East African Asians. Um, and they sacrificed uh, holidays for 25 years to get me and my brother through private education. So I feel wow. very privileged that they did that. But actually it struck me then also going through that time just a, a much stronger awareness of socioeconomic status and the haves and the have-nots and actually who you know versus what you know and the impact that can have. I mean, I had a beautiful education, but I didn't have the networks to kind of propel me forward. Now, I've been very blessed with a great career and great mentors and sponsors. And then the other dynamic growing up where I did in South London at the really formative years of my life, it was during the Brixton riots and, you know, race relations and mm. issues with police and black youth. And I just, all of those things culminated with this real desire to explore the diversity, equity, inclusion space, which of course is not what it was called at that time, but just, you know, how different puts us all in different positions of privilege, every, you know, different levels of tolerance, access, and so the passion grew from there. And, uh, and if I think about what I do now for a living, I feel really privileged to be able to influence the agenda. Um, I sit on um, trustee boards, uh, looking at how I can help charities and particularly how do you help um, youth from underprivileged backgrounds into top jobs? So, so really, really important to me, um, a passion, actually. I always laugh, so you cut me down the middle and it's the DEI stuff that comes oozing out. And... I mean, you had such a tough kind of, I guess, environment to grow up in. And despite some of the disadvantages you, you mentioned, you have built such a hugely successful career and you've come such a long way. 
But at the same time, I mean, you started by saying, you know, at a system level, not much has actually changed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If, if you unpick that, like, what do you think has changed for the better? What hasn't changed? And what can, can you and I do better or make better in the next 20 years? So I think what's better is that we are talking a lot more about all aspects of diversity, equity, inclusion. And I can certainly talk for myself and, and many, many friends of mine who are having different conversations at the dinner table with their kids. I do think there's a, a massive thing here around, you know, if you think about the Me Too movement, you mm. think about Black Lives Matter, you think about Asian hate. I mean, even the the terrible shootings that happened um, just the other day in, in the US, mm. um, it creates a different type of conversation at the table. And I think those are all really good. You know, I never spoke with my parents about LGBTQ plus issues. I mean, just would never come up. It just wasn't mm. even open for discussion. Um, not because my parents are bad people. It's just it wasn't out there in the same way. Whereas now it's a, an absolutely comfortable and open conversation at my table with my children. And I know that's happening in families across the world. Um, not everywhere, but I know that, that that's happening. So I think that's brilliant. I think the investment in um, diversity, equity, inclusion and CEOs recognizing the positions that they have To, to make a difference. I also think it helps that um, many of our CEOs, uh, and of course we have more male CEOs than we do women, are uh, looking at their own daughters or their own sisters and you know coming to some conclusions about what might be right or wrong. And that's helpful. But in the same breath, I am just not sure that we are making true tangible progress at pace i'm impatient right <laughs> i'd like i'd love for my daughter or my son to not have the issues that we've been talking about for a really really long time and what can people like you and i do i think use our position of privilege whatever that privilege might be um you know because we all have privileges We're not always aware of them. So I think, you know, understanding what privilege we bring to the table and how we can help those who don't have that privilege, being an ally, putting ourselves out there for the causes that really talk to us, because, of course, we don't have unlimited time and capacity, but find mm -hmm. the things that we really think we can make a difference on and lean into those. Be prepared to have the tough discussions and the tough conversations. Be prepared to um, be surprised. <laughs> by um, some, of the, some of the feedback. And something that I enjoyed doing at my previous company, and we're doing it at Salonis as well, is just having the courageous conversations, opening up, opening up the room to being vulnerable and to hearing stories and, and listening, because often it's just about letting people say what's on their mind and people appreciating that you're hearing and you're listening and then just asking, how can I help? I, so I, I think it's yeah. all the human stuff, right? It's all the human stuff. People want to be heard and they want to know how you and me and our positions can, can make a difference. I love all the points you made. I totally agree. I do think we have a very empathy-rich society. There's so much awareness for issues, uh, a level of comfort around topics, as you said, investment, recognition by people and position of power. Um, but, but yeah, I also agree. I mean, there's still so many challenges and, you know, you have, presidents who have no moral compass and it's it's a glass half full but it's mm -hmm. not yet a full glass um, yeah. for sure um just by the way like the one situation that really profoundly kind of shook me was you know we celebrate black history months at gusto 
and we have a black black society at Gusto, really amazingly engaged employees at Gusto, really, really powerful. And I spoke at an event and I shared some, some thoughts to set the scene and I talked about why it matters and why it's amazing and what, what we'll do. And I went to the community after and, you know, I said, can you give me some, some honest feedback? And the main feedback was, Timo, this was really rubbish. And, you know, he, here's why. He, here are the 30 points. Mm-hmm. And I have to admit, I felt really bad because I had the greatest intentions mm-hmm. and I really wanted to make a difference. I was energized by the topic, how I could help. And I think once, once I looked beyond the kind of, oh, let's forget to be heard. I mean, it really doesn't matter how I feel. Let's, let's really engage with the feedback. And I have to say the feedback was completely fair. I should have consulted them before. I should have changed some, some basic things. I think the feedback is totally valid. And I love, love, love that they felt the psychological safety was there to give me that mm-hmm. feedback. But it's been the most profound learning I had in the last 12 months. And, yeah. and so I'm trying to push myself much harder to surround myself with people who give me honest feedback to attack my blind spots because great intentions are wonderful, but they don't mean a lot. And so I'm trying to, to get better through that. But yeah, it's, it's that sounds uh, amazing. And that, that's the thing, right? Being vulnerable and open as a CEO, that takes bravery. Um, and then kind of, you know, also this, this classic being prepared to apologize if we get it wrong. <laughs> totally. Um, and, you know, the other thing that I often get is, oh, Neha, you've been working in this culture, diversity, equity, inclusion, leadership space for, for so long now. What's, what's the secret for DEI? And it's kind of like, you know what? <laughs> Learning every single day. This is one of those topics you just, you don't, it's morphing, it's changing. I don't have all the answers, but I just try and stay curious. And I just go and ask the people that may know more about a particular topic than I do, because that's their lived experience. They're living it every single day, right? So let me just go ask them. I I love that. And I love the point. The, The agenda is changing so much. If you watch a TV show, from just 10 years ago, you cringe today by the stuff they say, the yeah. jokes they make, right? It's so yeah. weird. Like you wouldn't do that ever again today. But 10 years ago, I'm sure I didn't notice. I watched the same show. I laughed. I didn't get it. So just on the topic. So you mentioned, you know, go to the people who know. Are you working with coaches, mentors? Like how have you unlocked the very high degree of self-awareness you're clearly displaying? So um, I am um, an occupational psychologist by background um, and an executive coach. So that's, you know, when people say, what do you do? That's actually how I respond. I don't respond with, you know, necessarily I'm the head of culture and leadership at Salonis because that's the job I do. But what I've loved about that training has been that the box gets opened, right? You um, sit there with the people who are training you to be a great coach or a great psychologist you're sitting there with your peers who are learning with you. You're asked tough questions, reflective questions, and you're taught to listen really deeply. Um, so there's something around building self-awareness. I, no matter how painful, I still keep reminding myself that feedback is really great, no matter how tough, <laughs> no matter how tough right? And, and I do get tough feedback. I think we all do. Um, and I think that's a good thing and being open to that, you know, and dusting yourself off and going, okay, I heard some feedback. What resonates? What, what can I um, do differently or better? But also I've had some really, really um, strong sponsors and mentors throughout my career. 
I'm a relationship person, so I don't hesitate to ping someone and say, hey, I'm playing with some something at the moment. I'm not quite sure. Are you open to a chat? And I've just been lucky to have people who are happy to invest that time in me. I just, I just uh, believe in that constant learning. Definitely don't know everything, and I'm definitely not going to get everything right. <laughs> so, um, I, and, but I do think the psych, psych, you know, the psychology training and the and the executive coaching training immediately kind of helps me and puts me in that mindset of um, just be aware, just be aware of what's going on around you. Uh, I, I love that. Um, so I became a certified coach two years ago now. I mean, increasingly, I really believe I'm, you know, a coach and, you know, a CEO is such a weird word, but ultimately it is coaching, unlocking Mm -hmm. human potential and being kind of the cheerleader, challenging people at at the right point, cheerleading them. How, so how have you found it and what did you learn about yourself? So what I learned to do was to ask better questions Mm -hmm. and to truly listen I, before I did my coaching qualification, I thought that I listened. I really did. <laughs> but now I get it. I mean, if I do, I do do a lot of pro bono executive coaching. I, I like to do a lot of that stuff for charity partners. I used to do it a lot in work. I don't happen to do that much at Salonis, but in previous roles, I did a lot of executive coaching internally. And of course, if I came out of a one hour coaching session exhausted, I knew that I was really listening, right? Really listening and just asking those great questions and, and enabling the individual to, to find their own answer, right? So that was that was a, a real um, learning for me. And what I learned about myself is that I can be tough on myself as well, right? There is a there is a sometimes a fear of failure that, that creeps in, <laughs> you mm. know, and then you start to, I certainly start to question, okay, why are we doing this? Why am I actually doing this piece of work here? Remind mm. myself, step back, pause, reflect, keep your eye on the end goal. What are the <laughs> different ways that we can get there? And this isn't about you, Neha. <laughs> this is about the end goal that we need to try and get to in the best possible way. So I think um, we find that across the board in, in individuals that are, you know, high achievers or focused on on the goals and performance to just just take that moment to reflect because there's life there's life outside of the job as well. Right, I'm a mom to two kids as well, mm. um, and they're they're in their teens, so that's an incredibly demanding time. And actually, now when I'm interviewing people, actually, I'm always also looking for how they're managing their own energy and balancing themselves mm. um, to not only give at work but actually give beyond that in terms of personal interest and personal legacy and personal impact on the world. So I, I've, I've definitely learned that about myself to, to, to pause, reflect and think, think about, think beyond the task at hand and beyond my own personal fear of failure. Love, love these points, super powerful. And so if you extrapolated from all the coaching conversations you have and you had to somehow group the topics, like what would be the top three topics? You know, is there, is there so much commonality in the conversations that you can literally say, yep, it's always these three topics that's most you know, relevant today for, for the people working at the company? I think the, the common things that I'm seeing are people not being able to find space to really reflect and breathe and so so that's a big big topic mm. just just find space to focus on yourself it's okay to just just take a moment because mm-hmm. if you take a moment to just breathe and pause and have someone ask you some great questions you'll figure it out 
right? So I think space is, is one thing. The other big topic is the assumptions that people make. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, lots of noise is caught up in, in what we believe rather than what we know necessarily, right? So I ask a lot of questions around what assumptions are you making to draw Mm -hmm. you to that conclusion? And then of course, once, and you'll know this from your own coaching experience, once you unpack that, the individual has an aha moment, which is like, oh my God, that was just like 10 assumptions in that one moment. And maybe now that's unlocked something for me that I can actually go and test my assumptions um, rather than, you know, uh, holding onto the assumptions, which which, uh, we all have. And then I think that the third area that I've noticed a lot in my pro bono work is, again, I think it's tied to the pandemic and just what's going on in the world around us. People just questioning, is this it? And this is certainly people later in their careers. Mm-hmm. Um, is this it? Like, is this really it? <laughs> you know, I'm doing this work. I'm, you know, I believe I enjoy my job, but, but to what end? Where is this all going? But certainly that's like a later career thing and and really helping people to understand back to this, what's your legacy? What's your purpose? How are you fulfilling your purpose? So those those would be three areas. So space, testing assumptions and and figuring out the legacy and to what end part of, of, you know, people's lives. Love, love these really, really powerful, massively resonate if you look at today, you know, people are switching careers, what, like on average, every 18 months in London, younger mm-hmm. generations, every 15 CMOs are in position for an average of under two years. You see so much like noise and change. Then you hear about automation and, and jobs kind of being automated. You know, like how will these coaching topics change in the next 10, 20, 30 years Will topics like purpose be amplified by 100x or, you know, where where is this heading? Oh, love the question. So what do I think? I do think the purpose question will continue to amplify. I think some of that is also generational, right? Uh, We've all read uh, the stories about, you know, what a millennial wants versus what a Gen (laughs) Z wants. And who knows if any of that's true, right? By Mm. the time they reach an age where they've got a mortgage and school fees and all those other things, who knows (laughs) if that all changes. But I do think that there's something emerging back to this topic of what's the impact we all want to have in the world. Hopefully we're living healthier and longer lives if all of the longevity research is true. So, you know, how are we living our lives? How are we focusing on that longer life being healthy, mm. thinking about our well-being? And of course, the important aspect of well-being isn't just, you know, our physical, physical health, but our mental health. And actually, both of those are tied directly to what we do for a living or we do in work, right? So actually, if I am going to live, not me necessarily, but if, you know, our younger generations are going to live to be 100, I'm assuming they'll want to be uh, healthy, happy, <laughs> wealthy mm-hmm. as well, if possible. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I, I do think this is going to continue. And I, I think this topic of trust again and, you know, where's that trust conversation going to go? Is it because at the moment I need to trust in my company? I need to trust in my CEO to do the right thing. I hope that continues. But do I need to start to trust in myself and my decisions and taking a stance on things and putting my money where my mouth is? as it were. I, I think, I do think, I think we're going to have more of that. Amazing. That's a very positive outlook on life then. 
And so you talked about the importance of understanding what energizes you, you know, what, what are your joy builders, blockers? How does it look like on a personal level for you? So I get massive joy from my children. Um, it's really, it's such a typical mom thing to say, but you know, my daughter is going to be 18 in October. My son is going to be 14 in a couple of weeks. Wow. And I mean, I literally can't believe that I'm saying that out loud to you. That freaks me out even saying it. Um, but it's just amazing looking at life through their perspective. And I'm getting a lot of joy from that. I mean, it's, it's hard work. Nobody really told me that it would get harder as they got older. In my head, I thought it was going to get you know easier, but I do get joy from that. I get, I get joy from these kind of conversations, speaking with leaders who are curious and interested and, and want to get it. And I'm a little bit of a geek in that sense that I genuinely love this culture and leadership stuff. So I get joy when uh, we can unlock that in our leaders and really important to me. And so I guess we get into the kind of the blockers and the, the, the things that disengage me is just doing a job for the job's sake. I, I want to know that this topic um, that I've chosen to, to immerse myself in, that the work I'm doing around this is adding value and having an impact. The worst nightmare is to sit in a job in an ivory tower delivering stuff. <laughs> not what I want to do, right? I want to create behavioral change. I want to create and have an impact and help incredible CEOs to build incredible companies. So that's, that's you know, those are real, real drivers for me and important for me in terms of the future turned off by too much ego too much politics um, i'm not into all of that stuff and <laughs> mm. um, that's a massive massive no-no for me but yeah adding you know making a difference spending time with my kids trying to find some time to spend a little bit more uh focus on my physical health would be nice <laughs> mm. um, but yeah that that's that's uh that's that's what i'd like in my bag amazing and if you if you were to write a book, what would the title be? Oh, now that's a tough one. That's a tough one. If I were to write a book, what would it be? It would be something to do with creating creating followership, probably something around creating followership. And I would sprinkle it with lots of examples of and by the way followership can be at the junior most levels too uh, it's just not just about you know the top of the house but it would be sprinkled with examples of brilliance that I have seen in my journey but honestly honestly Timo sprinkled with those disastrous moments where you're like oh my god something, <laughs> something so silly created such damage right and so it would be around followership And then the other one, you know, if I could write two books, the other one would be around um, creating space because I really do think we need more time to think. Although Nancy Klein has written a book on time to think, it's worth reading if you haven't read it already to add to your coaching repertoire, but something around creating space. Love it. Nancy Klein, time to think. It's on the list now. Um, mm -hmm. I, I love reading. I learn so much. So that's, I haven't read her book. So create followership, creating space. Yeah. Both books sound amazing. I hope you write them. <laughs> Me too. I'd love it's on my list, you know, to write a book one day. So let's see. Amazing. And and to the point, right? Like the cringy moments, the bad moments. If I look back on on, you know, the five worst moments in the last 10 years, I mean, these are so rich from a learning perspective. And as long as I can reframe bad situations today and remember that these were so rich in learning in the past, 
-hmm. I feel like my mental health is like 10 times better. Um, but it's hard obviously to do it in the, in the moment when things bad, what bad things happen. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where having your trusted partners by your side, right. Who are, who are raising that awareness for you as well, in case you miss them. I just think it's so important for CEOs and for leaders to have that around them, no matter how painful, right. To having, to just have those people to go, Hey, did, did you know, and did you see, you might want to reflect on that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it's it's a powerful point. We should talk. I mean, if you're looking for people to coach, we should talk. <laughs> okay, I'm up for it. Always up for it. <laughs> Amazing. Any final advice for people listening in, just in general, how to think about their career, regardless of what level they're in? Yeah. So this was actually um, some advice that one of my mentors gave me um, when I was at UBS, actually. And I'm not even sure that she realizes that I've held on to this advice till this day. She said to me, Neha, you know, you need to manage yourself like a business. Think about um, the fact that you are the only person that's going to invest in as much in your business it's not, you know, it's you. You are going to invest in your career more than anyone else is going to invest in your career. So be really conscious of what you want, what you need, what's going to make you happy. What's, mm. what, what's, what's the kind of investment you need to make in your business that is you? What are the losses you're prepared to take? It's like another, it's another way of looking at the pros and cons, right? Mm. You know, where, where do you need to self-fund your education? Right. Where, where are you prepared to take a few really hard knocks from an employer because it's going to help you to build, nourish and grow your business? So mm-hmm. I think being really self-aware, thinking about yourself as, as a business in quotation marks, uh, you know, w- what's what's the brand of this business? What are you going to be famous for? You know, mm-hmm. what, what are you going to be known for? Be curious about that business, just like you are, Timo, as the CEO of your business. Right. Be curious. Um, what can you learn from others? So. For me, take ownership of your own career. No one's going to care about it as much as you do. Find some brilliant mentors, sponsors. Always be open to learning. Think about the investments you'll make. Think about the losses that you're prepared to take. And then call it. Call it when there are just too many things on the negative side of that list. Too many things are being taken you know, away from the business and not enough coming in. And make mm. that hard decision to move on if you have to. Love these points. Really, really powerful. I read, it really reminds me of Ray Dalio's book, Principles, in which he talks about Neha, you know, the employee, and then there's Neha, the supervisor. And once in a while, you kind of have to step outside Mm -hmm. and really analyze how you're spending your time, what energizes you, all the things you just mentioned, but give yourself some harsh feedback and kind of change the system. Don't be lost in the system all the time. You got to step outside and, and gain that perspective, as you said. Yeah, yeah. Love that. I'm going to write that book down too. <laughs> it's, a, it's a long book. I don't recommend it as an audio oh, book. <laughs> oh, no, no. It's a great book. I love it. I mean, yeah. it's so insightful. It's just not not the best audio book. I not listen to it while it's driving. And I, I mean, it's, you know, it's like thousands of pages. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah it's been hugely fun. Uh, we could talk for hours. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for the time, Timo. And uh, listen, let's stay in touch if you ever want to chat. I would love that. Thank you. 